0: Why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 16. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is what we're going to be covering. Marching orders from the king. So this passage is one that's familiar to us. Uh, It's one of the passages that's so familiar we have a name for it. You know, like there's the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. This one we call the Great commission. Now, a commission is defined as an instruction, a command, or duty given to a person or group of people. And the instruction given by Jesus in this passage, it's our primary mission in life. It is our great duty. Now, out of all the instruction that Jesus gave his disciples in that 40-day period between his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, this command, this one thing, is what the Holy Spirit led Matthew to close his gospel, his gospel with. It's the very end of the book of Matthew. And this command, as believers, this command is to shape and define our lives. So why teach out of a passage that we pretty much all know? Right? We can all roughly at least recite the Great Commission. Uh, it's because we're all good at forgetting it. And can you think of anything that if Satan could distract us from something in Scripture, this would be one of the things, right? Don't, don't pay attention, it's not that great of a commission. Or that's, that's just for the disciples. So we're gonna be reminded of it tonight, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would prick each one of our hearts this evening, and that would spur us on to a greater understanding of the Great Commission, and a sharper focus of it in our lives. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and these are our marching orders. So once you stand with me? I'm not going to make you march with me. <laughs> I'll let the Holy Spirit uh, prod you on to that. So let's read, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Pray that you would um, bring it to life uh, to us, Lord. I pray that you would uh, knock the dust off of this passage uh, in our hearts, Lord, and that we would uh, understand um, the non-negotiableness of your command here. We don't have the option to disobey you in this, Lord. Um, This must be what our lives is about, so I pray that you would make it clear. You'd open your word, um, let it be sharp in our hearts tonight, Lord, and I ask for your grace to communicate your word clearly to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So let's start in verse 16. Then, that's as far as we're going. It's not all going to take this long, but we're going to start because we're at the end of the story. This is chapter 28 of 28 in the book of Matthew. It's the last chapter of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Now, Thankfully, you guys know what's been happening in Matthew because Pastor Ben has been telling you on Sundays for the last little while. Um, but just for some context, I want to sum up Matthew, sort of. Uh, I just want to focus on one aspect of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the aspect of the king and the coming kingdom. So at this time in history, the Jewish people, right? they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, But they were not without hope because they were waiting for the Messiah, the promised one that God had said was going to come and deliver them. They believed that the Messiah would come and he would establish his kingdom on earth, and they were looking forward to it. Now, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about a physical rule and reign of the Messiah on earth, Uh, but I want to read you a couple from Daniel that are very clear. Daniel 244, um, it's this, the, the part in Daniel where uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the, the image that's made, uh, each section is made from a different material, and each material uh, represents a different kingdom that would come in the future, and Nebuchadnezzar can't find anybody to interpret it, and Daniel not only interprets the dream, but he, God shows him what the dream was before Nebuchadnezzar even uh, told him. But then in the, it says that in the last days, the, or the days of the last kings, uh, which is the, the feet of the, the image, there would come a kingdom that is spoken of in this verse. Verse 44 says, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So it's a kingdom that's going to be set up by God. It's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. A kingdom that would consume all other kingdoms. This is the kingdom that the Jews longed for in Jesus' first coming. And you can't blame them. Under the rule of the Roman Empire, they, let's bring a guy with a big sword. Further on in Daniel, in one of his, his prophecies of the end times, he, he has a, a very similar vision where he says, I was watching in the night visions and behold One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Again, as an oppressed people, they would be looking forward to this kingdom. So then fast forward to Matthew when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What would they think of? They would think of this. They would think of Daniel's prophecy. When Jesus showed up in Matthew chapter 4, he said the same thing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then later in in Matthew 4, it says that he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness. It makes sense why people would be excited. It makes sense that they would think of a physical, earthly kingdom. It makes sense that in John six, they would try to make Jesus king, like force him to be king. But Jesus came in his first coming to establish a spiritual kingdom. He came to wage war against and defeat an enemy greater than Rome, the enemy of our souls. You started to get clues in this as Jesus started to teach about his kingdom in Matthew five through seven, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It was all about the heart. It was about desiring humility, righteousness, purity. He taught not an external morality, or not merely an external morality, but a morality that permeates our thoughts, our desires, and our motives. Now, think of how shocking it must have been to a people expecting a kingdom, expecting a a revolution, an uprising, to hear Jesus say things like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, which in that context was the Roman soldiers who were oppressing them could say, carry my bags for a mile. And Jesus said, take it too. And he said things like, love your enemies. That must have been shocking to hear, like, aren't we going to wipe them out? Like, what's the deal? thought this was the king and the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom was not how they thought it was going to be. This kingdom that Jesus was establishing, it was not one that would be seen with the eyes. It would not come out of heaven as they were, they were looking for that, as it said in, in Daniel. Jesus is going to do that later. In, in Luke 17, it says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That word observation is an astronomy term. It's not gonna come by looking up at the sky. Nor will they say see here or see there. He says for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or better translated the kingdom of God is in your midst. The king was standing before them. So fast forward to the the end of of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't the king that they were hoping he would be, the kind of king they wanted. They crucified him. And you imagine being his disciples, the disappointment and despair as Jesus was crucified and buried. Like he kept talking about the kingdom. How is he gonna have a kingdom when when he's dead? But imagine their awe and excitement now as Jesus is alive from the dead, standing in their midst. So now we move past the first word. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So this is one of the many appearances of Jesus to his disciples at, after the resurrection. Now this is not to be confused with his appearance to them in Acts chapter one right before he ascended into heaven because right now they're in Galilee and he did that in Jerusalem. Acts chapter one took place on the mountain just outside of Jerusalem. But this is a prearranged meeting with the disciples because in Matthew 26, 32, Jesus had told the boys, he said, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I don't think they quite got that that's a pretty crazy statement. It's like, oh yeah, after I die and rise again, no big deal, meet me in Galilee. So he told them, meet them there. And then at the beginning of this chapter, you can look back just a few verses. In verse seven, the angel is talking to the, woman who, the women who had come to the tomb looking for Jesus, and he had said, he's not here, he's risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. That's verse six, and then verse seven, he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen, From the dead, that's number one. And number two, and indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So he said, tell the guys two things. Number one, I'm alive, and don't forget our meeting in Galilee. This was important. And then so the ladies are going back, and they meet Jesus. Just right there in verse 10. And they worshiped him, and it says, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, Jesus reminds them of this meeting. Three times now it's been talked about. So it says when Jesus, when he arrived, when they saw him, it says they worshiped, they, they fell down and worshiped Jesus, and it says, but some doubted. Now the word that it uses for, for doubt there doesn't seem to indicate like a, a disbelief in Jesus, like a, oh, I don't, I don't believe in, in Jesus, I don't believe he's alive, but like a this is hard to believe kind of doubting, which, all of us would have, if we saw somebody risen from the dead, we would rub our eyes and pinch ourselves like, am I seeing straight? It's okay, we can cut them a little slack to, to, to wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus was before them. So what did Jesus have to say to them at this meeting that he had told them about before, that the angel had told the ladies to tell him, that Jesus had told the ladies to tell them? What was it? Well, the king was alive risen from the dead. And he had marching orders for his disciples. Verse 18. So what did the king say? He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So all authority, right? That word authority, it can indicate power or the ability to do whatever he pleased. But more than that, it indicates authority or the right to do it. The boundaries of the of the king's kingdom, right? His jurisdiction included heaven and earth. That's another way of saying everything. Jesus had all authority over everything. But interesting that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, which means somebody gave Jesus this power. Now this was not given to him by earthly kings or rulers. It was not given to him by, the, by spiritual powers. Satan did not give Jesus power he he tried that trick in chapter four and Jesus passed that test. It was given to him by the only one who could give Jesus all authority, which was the Father. There are many verses that talk about this, but we'll just look at a couple, 1 Corinthians 1527, quoting the Old Testament in, in bold there. It says, For he has put all things under his feet. God has put all things under Jesus' feet, under his authority but when it says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So the Father has declared that Jesus, he has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has also, God, also God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and on those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The verses right before this talk about Jesus humbling himself, taking on flesh, bearing our sins as the, the humble servant, and then it says that God highly exalted him. So everyone and everything in heaven and earth bows the knee to Jesus as Lord. Therefore, therefore, he says, based on the fact that Jesus has all authority, what follows? Well, first, we see that the fact of Jesus' authority is gonna serve two purposes in his instruction to his disciples. Number one, it's a motivation to obedience. Jesus has all authority. So the instructions that follow to his disciples, which we are, They are not suggestions. They're not optional activities. It is a command from the king to his servants. It applies both to his disciples who were standing there and to all who would ever be his disciple. But number two, the second thing that the fact of Jesus' authority, what it does for us is that It's a source of comfort. Jesus' authority is a source of comfort to us because he's going to conclude his instruction to us with a promise that he will be with us. And if Jesus, who has all authority and all power in heaven and earth, is with us, who can be against us? It's a source of comfort. So he says make disciples of all nations. Now, we're gonna come back to the word go, but I think the main idea of the passage, if you were to sum it, summarize it all up in one phrase, it would be make disciples of all the nations. The rest of the imperatives that we're going to look at, going, baptizing, teaching, they help explain and define what it means to make disciples. So, what are disciples supposed to do? Make disciples. So, what is, it, what is a disciple? Well, the disciple is, is the term that was used of these 11 guys who followed Jesus, and it literally means a learner or a pupil. It's somebody who learns. Now, the same word in Greek as this guy is a disciple, it, the, the verb form is used here make disciples, disciple discipleify them, discipleify the nations. I realize that's not good English, but that's okay, it's Greek. So our primary call is to make more learners, make more disciples, more pupils of Christ. Just as the disciples had been learning Jesus' teaching for the last three years, their mission would now be to teach others, make more students, more people who will learn and come under the instruction of Christ. Now this idea, it kind of stands in contrast to was a very common idea that people just need to get saved. Now, yes, people do need to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus to receive forgiveness and salvation. I'm Not disagreeing with that. But we have to banish from our thinking the idea that making converts is the end goal. It's the beginning goal. There has to be more to the gospel than just the idea of spiritual fire insurance. Like we need to make sure so when you die, yes, That is absolutely valid that we need to be ready because we don't know when we're gonna die. We don't know the day or the hour that the Lord has set out for us. But the goal must be to make disciples, to make pupils, and then to teach them. That is what Jesus has commanded in the Great Commission. And that includes, if someone is a disciple, they are a convert, but it's not stopping at a convert. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a good thing to share the gospel in the grocery store when you're in line or sitting on the plane or in your neighborhood. Absolutely, preach, always preach. But we should set our sights on something higher, something bigger, something deeper, which is to continue to disciple that person, if at all possible. Now, it's not always possible, right? Some plant the seed, some water the seed. God gives the increase. You've, you've not failed in any way, shape, or form if you're on the plane with somebody and and you share the gospel with them, and they confess Christ, and then you never see them again. That's not a failure. That is a good thing. But what if we aimed for more than conversion, and we aimed for discipleship, to make disciples? In other words, let me put it this way. The goal is not just that people would be born again and be spiritual babies, but that they would be mature believers. That is the goal. As we are looking at people, as we're sharing the gospel with people, that should be our desire. And that should be our desire because that is what Christ has commanded us to do here. So we are to make disciples of others. So who do we make disciples of? It says, make disciples of all the nations. Now we hear that, we're like, great, it's for everybody. But this would have been a major thing for these Jewish men to hear. Jesus was not after just some Jewish followers. He desired for all nations to learn of him. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now this was not a new idea in scripture. It's not a a, a new development that God is like, actually, you know what? I'm gonna include all the nations. Way back, the very beginning of God calling the nation of Israel The very first time in Genesis chapter 12 when God made a covenant with Abraham, part of the covenant that he made, he said, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the gospel is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham. The kingdom of heaven was not to be populated by Jews alone, but by people from every nation. Now let's go back to go. He says, go, so under the umbrella with the idea of making disciples, the first description of what it means to make disciples is to go. Now, we hear the word go, but that begs the question, well, go where? What direction? And the question is answered in one sense in the phrase, all nations, all the nations. So they were to go to all the nations and make disciples. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives a few more details to his disciples as to, to where and, and what that looks like. So just before Jesus ascended into heaven, right the disciples were gathered, probably uh, maybe the 500, at least a large crowd of them, and they asked Jesus, he said, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" Verse seven, and he said to them, "It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own." authority. They wanted to know, so when's the physical kingdom coming? And he said, it's none of your business right now. You don't need to know right now. But here's what you do need to know, is that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. You are going to make disciples in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So don't worry about when Jesus is coming back. We don't have to know when we just have to know that he is coming back but in the meantime this is how you're going to build the kingdom is preach the gospel make disciples he's going to give them the holy spirit and they would make disciples in jerusalem judea samaria to the ends of the earth so let's look at this on a map just so we can kind of see it's kind of circled in green jerusalem is there kind of at the bottom that's where they were, to st- they were supposed to start, there. He said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes, and then start there. So that means that mission work includes our own backyard. This was, a lot of them were from Galilee, but this was kind of the, the center, their home, their home base. They were to start there, but then, not just there, but, but Judea, right? So we zoom out a little bit. Judea was the region that Jerusalem was in. So expand out to the region from there but also Samaria, right? Not just the surrounding cities, not just the surrounding region, but the neighboring regions. Now, I think Jesus could have just said, you know, Judea and the surrounding areas, but I think he specifically said Samaria because if you guys remember, the Jews would go literally out of their way to avoid going into Samaria because they did not get along with the Samaritans. So even the people that we don't like, Jesus said, you're gonna go and preach the gospel To them, Go to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That little red circle somewhere in there is the country of Israel. It doesn't even show up on the globe this far, zoomed out. But the gospel was to go to the ends of the earth. It was gonna keep spreading and spreading until it went everywhere. Now this tells us that the teachings of Jesus should and can permeate every country and every culture. I know sometimes, you know, we we think about other cultures and I don't know how many of you guys have experienced other cultures, but you're like, oh, this culture is so different. I don't really know how the gospel would like land in this kind of culture. No, Jesus said all authority has been given to me in the whole earth. So his teachings need to go there and transform every culture. There is no country, no culture, no community where the gospel cannot go. So, little side trail. How did the apostles do uh, with the Great Commission in the book of Acts? So, let's just give a little, a little recap. So, chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had told them would happen. Verse 14, we see Peter preaching. Peter says, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. He proceeds to share the gospel to talk about Jesus died and rose again. And what happened? Verse 41 says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I think the 31 we did this last week, that was easy. 3,000 souls were baptized. Then Acts chapter 4, they continue to preach in Jerusalem. More people get saved. It says, however, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So you go from the, the you know, roughly that, that group of 500 that had seen Jesus, the disciples start preaching. 3,000 people get saved. Now either we're up another 5,000 or we're up to 5,000. Either way, more people are getting saved. That's, it's a large church, by the way, 5,000 people. So then later in Acts 4, the church is going awesome, right? It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles give witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's fellowship, there was community, There was the grace of the Lord. Chapter 5, it says, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. They stopped naming the number, just multitudes were being added to the Lord. The church was growing so many that in chapter 6, we read about there's widows who are getting overlooked as the church is trying to take care of them, which just goes to show that logistics have been a nightmare for pastors since the very beginning of the church. And then in chapter seven, one of the men appointed to tend to the widows, which was Stephen, he preaches, he is stoned to death, and that brings us to chapter eight, which says, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So it says that the persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem. Until this point, all the activity that we are reading about in the book of Acts is happening in Jerusalem. So in a sense, the disciples had been obeying the Great Commission. They were preaching in Jerusalem. That's good, but it's all they had done so far. But because of the persecution, the mass of believers was dispersed throughout the surrounding regions And you notice they were dispersed into Judea and Samaria, which were the next two steps, just as Jesus had commanded. Now, I've heard different ideas. I've heard different sermons about, was the church too comfortable? We were all in a holy huddle. Were they not obeying? They didn't want to obey Jesus' command. They were reluctant to spread out. All of those might have a grain of truth. We're not told in the text that the church was walking in disobedience because they were only fulfilling the Great Commission in some spot. But what we do see is that the Lord allowed and he used persecution of the church to animate the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But let's let's learn a lesson, though, from the early church to be intentional about living out the Great Commission. Because I would rather be intentional about living it out than have the Lord allow some persecution or some other sort of loving nudge to force us, to push us into that. So let's be intentional about that, because yeah, we can, it's comfortable to be with believers and be in a huge community of believers, but the great commission Jesus has given us is to go, is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So in making disciples, we are to go to all the nations, and the next facet that it says is to baptize them baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus has all authority, he commands his disciples to baptize new disciples. From the very beginning, we see them carry this out. Peter preached, and they believed, and they were baptized. Now, baptizing them in the name of the Father, should that be in the name of the Father, or into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, scholars kinda disagree. Whether it should be in, like, in the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or into into unity and communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the good news no matter which way you say this word means, both ideas are supported in Scripture, right? That's how we, when we baptize people, any of you who have been baptized in the last couple of years, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's not the name of the pastors or the church here. It's by the authority of the Trinity, of God. So that's biblical. Scripture definitely teaches, right, that water baptism is an external representation of a spiritual reality, right? That through repentance and faith, believers are brought into unity with Christ. The old man is dying with Christ, the new man being raised to life by the power of God It is true that to be submerged into Christ or baptized into Christ right, is to be submerged, become one with the Father, is to be submerged into the Holy Spirit. So whether it's in the name of the Father or into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, they're both true, they're both true. But the the point is that they were to baptize disciples. They were to instruct people to believe in their hearts to genuinely repent, and then to demonstrate that repentance and faith by an external act of obedience called baptism. Jesus commanded it, the apostles practiced it, and so that's, that is what we are to do, and that is why we do what we do. And then he says to teach, so we go to the nations. We make pupils, learners, disciples of the nations. We baptize the nations, and the last facet of making disciples is to teach the nations. What are we to do? We are to teach them. Yes, Christianity is a religion of showing God's love. Yes, it is a religion of serving. That is; Those are both vital things in Christianity. But also, we have to remember that Christianity is a religion of teaching. Now, who should be teaching? Who should teach? Everyone. Everyone who is a believer. To be a Christian... To be a disciple is to teach. If to be a disciple is to be a learner, a student, then to be a disciple maker is to be a teacher. Now, you might be saying, wait, isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that the elders are supposed to do that? Yes, those men are supposed to teach. That is a main function that they do, but not exclusively, because the pastor has a job description in Ephesians 4 that includes teaching. It says, Ephesians 4.11, he, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So pastors are called to teach, yes, but not to have a monopoly on all teaching that goes on in the kingdom of God. Pastor Ben and I and Pastor Isaac are so thankful that that is the case, right, that It's not just on our shoulders to do all the teaching. Because the pastor's teaching has a goal in mind. It says it is for equipping or preparing the saints, that's everyone in this room who's put their faith in Christ. For what purpose? For the work of ministry. So the pastors here, our responsibility, our job description is to teach God's word, to equip every person in this room for the work of ministry. Because Jesus did not just give the Great Commission to pastors. He gave it to disciples, to everyone. So it's to equip the saints and for edifying or building up the body of Christ. So it means we are all called to teach in some capacity. Now, that doesn't mean you're teaching in front of 200 people. It doesn't mean it has to be from a stage. The expectation is that you are able and preparing yourself to explain God's word to someone else. Now, this might sound like super freaky, but put yourself in the shoes of the disciples or just some random person who was at the Sermon on the Mount, okay? You just heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. You've Never heard anything like it. You're like, that was amazing. You go back home, your neighbor's like, oh, you heard Jesus preach? Well, what did he say? You wouldn't be like, oh, well, I don't know how to explain it because... I don't have a degree and I'm not a pastor and I, there's no stage and no pulpit. I don't know, I just can't explain it. No, you would just tell them what Jesus said. And that is what Jesus gave the disciples to do. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Everything I've been teaching you the last three years, teach other people those things. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready to answer questions. We need to be ready to dig into God's word. Right, when people ask you, what is wrong with this world? Or what happens to sinners? What did Jesus do to pay for our sin? How do we receive forgiveness? And then what, what do do we do after that? Do you know the answers to those questions? Can you answer that? If somebody asks you, the commission, the charge has been given to you, it's not an optional thing. We need to know how to answer those questions. That doesn't mean it has to be in a mile long theological paper with words that are only 13 letters or longer. It means we need to be able to explain it. And probably the less 13 letter words, the the better. So if if you're listening to this and you're like, I do not know how to do that, please come talk to myself or Ben or Isaac or one one of the pastors. We would love to point you in the right direction to get you equipped to sit down and talk about, okay, how do you explain God's word to somebody? So we are all called to teach. So what should we teach? It says everything that Jesus commanded. All the things that I have commanded you, teach him to observe, to keep those things. That is the reason that we study all of God's word. It's the reason why we work our way through scripture, why we esteem the totality of scripture, because we need to be able to teach others. Study it so you can teach it. And I'll just tell you, one of the best ways to really study hard is when you know you're about to teach somebody else. And getting in those conversations with people and them asking you a hard question, you're not a failure if you don't know the answer, you're normal. And it's okay to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but let me come back. Let me go find out the answer. And I, get, and I, I guarantee you, when you do the legwork, to find out the answer and go back, you're probably going to remember the next time because you are studying with a purpose. So we should be, if we are disciples, we are students. And if we are obedient, we are disciple makers. We are teachers. Now the final imperative is low. Now you look at that, that's a verb. It's really easy to look over low and just think it's like a, old-fashioned way of saying yo or hey, but it actually is a verb that's in the imperative form, which means to look. Look at this. Look at this. Here's something you need to pay attention to, is what Jesus is saying, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if preaching the gospel intimidates you, just imagine being in James's shoes, one person with 10 other guys, and Jesus is telling you, Everything I taught you, go teach the whole world. Everything that you've learned. Like, I don't remember everything. It's okay. The Holy Spirit was going to help them. That sounds overwhelming, right? Just you and 10 other people, whole world, no big deal. But guys, we are here. We are here in this room studying God's word because those men were faithful. And the men that they taught, the people they taught, were faithful and they taught people and they taught people. That is the way that we are here that all of us are here because we have heard the word from somebody who heard the word from somebody all the way back up to these guys so you're you're definitely in the minority if you're one of the 11 disciples here and so he gives them comfort he says lo he says look at this that I am with you always to the end of the age to so the end of time the one who has all the authority has promised to be with all of us always forever. So yeah, 11 disciples standing there receiving the Great Commission. 11 verses. the world sounds hard, but Jesus is with you. You're going to face difficulty, but Jesus is with you. You're going to face pushback and persecution, but Jesus is with you. You're going to be rejected, but Jesus is with you. You might be the only believer in the whole town or the whole country, but Jesus is with you. All your friends might desert you, but Jesus is with you. They might try to arrest you, but Jesus is with you. You might get locked up in prison and left there for who knows how long, but Jesus is with you. To paraphrase Psalm 23, if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is with you. So if you are a disciple of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, the Great Commission is your commission. It is your duty. It is your mission in life. It is not to be a part of our life or something that we do on the weekends. It is to be our life. You are to go. You are to make disciples. You are to baptize. You are to teach. That is what God has given us to do. And if you're here or you're listening later and you don't know Christ, you're outside of Christ, you're still trapped in your sin, I want to encourage you that Jesus calls you to repent to turn from your sin, because if you die apart from Christ, if you die separated from the Lord by your sin, you will remain that way for eternity. But Jesus came to this world. He took on humanity. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He gave up his life on the cross. He became a willing sacrifice to pay for the sin that you and I have committed. He paid our debt with his life and he rose again three days later, and he can offer us forgiveness because our sin has been paid for. And if we will turn from our rebel ways, turn from our sin, confess Jesus as our Lord, as our master, he'll wash away our sin, he will count us as righteous, and he will impart his life to us. So if you've never done this, I urge you to wait no longer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that um, this is not fire insurance that you have called us to just, okay, we're good, and now just we have no purpose in life. Lord, you have given us a great purpose. You've given us a mission. You've given us a call that we will never finish, which means we always have purpose in this life. There is things that you have laid out for us, good works that you have laid out for us since beforehand for us to walk in. So Lord, I pray you'd help us to walk in it, Lord. Let us be intentional. Help us to be intentional about living out the Great Commission, to look around in our lives, to, Lord, please open our eyes to the community that's in our backyard, to the community nearby us, Lord, maybe to the places that we don't really want to go, even Olympia, Lord, and the rest of the world. Lord, God, I pray that you would just stir in each one of our hearts the reality that we are, call it missionaries, we are to be on mission, with the gospel everywhere we go. And Lord, as we go, I pray that you would um, equip us and give us the grace to disciple, to make learners, to make students of you. Give us the grace to uh, be able to teach your word clearly. Um, Pray that you would just rearrange our schedules, you would rearrange our priorities, Lord, um, that we can not squeeze the Great Commission in Lord, but that everything else would have to be squeezed in around the Great Commission, because we are walking in obedience to you, Lord. To so pray that you'd just stir our hearts to this, equip us, and empower us to do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.